Father, so thankful for this church, Lord, and the blessing that they are in my life and the life of others. Lord, I would pray for this church. I would pray for the people that are here. I know that uh, every time we gather together, uh, that are some that are struggling financially, Lord, I pray that you would help to give them answers and provision. Lord, I know that there are some who are struggling in their relationships. I pray that you would give them peace. Father, there are those who are struggling in their health. Lord, I pray that you would give them healing. Lord, I know that there are those who are mourning, and I pray that you would give them comfort. Father, for many people, uh, they're having some of the best times of their life. And I pray for them, Lord, that they would turn their joy into praise, that they would thank you for the wonderful gifts you've given them. Father, we are cognizant of the reality that there are churches all over this city that are gathered together, Lord, and we want to see them all succeed. Uh, We're thankful for our part in um, uh, ministering alongside them. I thank you this morning for Meadowbrook Church and for uh, Pastor Keith Miller there, Lord. I would pray that you would be blessing him as a pastor, bless his family, uh, allow him to be so overflowing uh, with you and your Holy Spirit uh, that it would spill out into his ministry, that your word and your spirit would uh, flow through him in such a way to edify and build up the people of that church, that he'd be able to fill them as well to overflowing, uh, that they would be able to uh, then use what they've received uh, to minister to the themselves and to minister to the community around them. Father, we also thank you for those groups that we support, uh, such as other churches in this case. Um, Pray for Harriman Chapel, for Pastor Aaron Kaur and his work out there, Lord. Thankful for his uh, ability to do that. Thankful that we have him uh, healthy enough now where he can serve in this way. Uh, Lord, I would pray uh, for him as a pastor, that he would know how it is that he's supposed to pastor a church in that circumstance. It's just a different place. It's a different uh, way of doing ministry. Help him to fit in nicely there, Lord. Help the people there to learn to love him, uh, that they would support him. Uh, Lord, I pray as he faithfully preaches the word there that the people there would be uh, filled to the point where they can begin to disciple others and they would begin to reach out to their neighbors, uh, that there would be uh, a harvest among those families that are outside of the city limits there, but uh, closer to him than they are to us. Lord, we also pray uh, for the ministries in our church. I thank you for our greeters ministry and uh, Debbie Reynolds and the work she does in uh, leading that. Uh, Lord, I would pray that you would uh, uh, give those who are greeters uh, the gift of hospitality, uh, that others who maybe have that gift would uh, want to join up with that ministry, that people would always feel welcome in our church, uh, that they would always recognize that we want them here, that we want them to hear the word uh, so that they can grow. Father, we pray for our time in the Word today. Uh, Another challenging passage, 1 Corinthians, is full of them. Uh, And this week, I would pray that you would again use this uh, to begin the process of bringing healing and disputes in the lives of believers. Father, if there's anybody here today or anybody that's going to hear this message in the future uh, that is struggling through a dispute right now, uh, that they would be willing uh, to surrender themselves to your Word and your way of handling things, uh, to see just where it is that you can bring them Uh, to hopefully a place of peace and a place of understanding, a place of uh, being able to get beyond those disputes. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak clearly to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Get those Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. While you're turning there, I'm going to ask something I don't do very often, but I'm going to ask that you guys would pray for me. just an atypical week for me in the next week and a half. Uh, I will be um, this week teaching at the men's conference in Longmont, 
on Friday and then I come back here and teach on Sunday and then I turn around and go down to Castle Rock and we have our, our regional pastors conference, ministry leaders conference. And at that conference, I'll be teaching, I'll be leading a, um, a sharing time, I'll be on a Q&A panel and then in between each of the sessions, I've made myself available for counseling with any pastors that have stuff. And in hindsight, that may have been too much. <laughs> As I now think through all of those things and realize that at this point, the only sermon I have done is this morning's sermon. Um, so just, uh, you know, pray that God will do smarter things than I do. Um, all right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, hopefully you guys have your Bibles open there now. We're working our way uh, through this particular passage and working our way through this book and seeing the ways that uh, God would like to guide us. We're finishing up this section today on bad reports in the church, uh, centered primarily, it seems, on the issue uh, of lawsuits, but it's going to spill over into the concept of unbelievers in the church or believers who are acting like unbelievers in the church. So those two things will kind of spill together in today's message. Uh, leading into next Sunday, where we have this very long chapter that deals with some questions that have been asked of the Apostle Paul specifically about marriage. So that's a great one to invite all your friends to because you'll get to see Pastor Sean blush. So... Uh, as we look at this here, chapter 6, though, overall what Paul's going to show us is how we can solve our disputes by acting more like believers and less like unbelievers. A pretty simple concept, really, uh, but he does go into some pretty cool detail here to give us some principles that we can kind of follow. Uh, so let me read here verse 1 through 6. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous? and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? For if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not one among you, not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and, there, and that before unbelievers. So my disclaimer right at the beginning here, I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. I'm a pastor, this is biblical advice. And so just to make that clear, I cannot advise you. In fact, I've had this happen, I can't know how many times over the years where people will come to me with a legal matter and say, you know, what should I do about this? And I'm like, that's a legal matter, right? Like, I, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know why you're asking me these things. But instead, what we can do is when we have disputes among believers in the church, we can try to solve those first in the church before they get out into the world. And that's ultimately what Paul's dealing with here. 
Uh, and he, he asks it in the form of a question. In fact, he's going to have questions all throughout this particular passage. But it's this whole idea, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Uh, what Paul is concerned about here uh, is that people don't seem to trust the church to solve, as he says here, the smallest law courts. They just weren't trusting the church to solve some of those very basic things. And so Paul is going to go about proving the point, in his mind anyway, uh, that the church is actually capable of dealing with most disputes within the church. Now, I'm going to make a differentiation here between civil and criminal. Uh, What I mean by that is a civil dispute is something where nobody's necessarily broken a law, but there is some sort of wrong there. There is some sort of disagreement there. Somebody needs to step in. But if, you know, somebody has uh, um, stolen your car, don't come to me and ask me to deal with it. Just go to the police. If somebody has perpetuated some sort of violent crime against you, if you come to me, my first response is going to be to call the police. So it's not to reject the authority of the state's government. In fact, Paul will make that exact point in Romans chapter 13. He talks about how uh, the, the government has been established for the purpose of administering justice. Now, they don't always do it well, but that's why they exist. But what he's saying is, when you have things within the church that can be resolved, first try to resolve them here. Because as he says, or at least I think he's trying to tell us, we're capable of doing this. And he does that by posing this question, do you not know? Do you not know? In other words, he's saying, you should have already understood these things. But do you not know that the saints... That's all of us who are believers, not some special group of sainted people. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? When we look at the end times events, when we look at prophecy going forward, what the end of the world will be like, there is this appointment of believers to bring judgment into the world, particularly in the millennial kingdom there. If we can bring judgment to the world, we can probably figure out if you're having a minor dispute with your neighbor who happens to attend church with you or happens to be a believer at another church. We can probably figure those things out. Do you not know, he says, that we're going to judge angels? Well, actually, I didn't know that, to be honest with you. Um, In fact, the only place in Scripture I can find that is right here. So the Holy Spirit is revealing something to us we didn't previously know. Uh, But it says, do you not know that we will judge angels? Again, we don't have a lot of information about that, so I'm going to make some assumptions. Uh, My assumption is when it talks about us judging angels, it's talking more specifically about fallen angels, that there might be some role in us judging uh, the demonic world. Um, Not just, you know, judging a guardian angel. Why didn't you keep me out of that car wreck? I judge you. (laughs) Not something like that, but just in some way, what he's saying is God is entrusting us as saints, as believers, to have the ability to judge the world, to have the ability to judge angelic beings. So if we're capable of handling those type of circumstances, we should be able to rightly judge matters between ourselves and other believers. And when we cannot solve those, we can bring those to other people in the church. And he says it like this, is there not among you one wise man 
who will be able to decide between his brethren. Now for the Jewish believers, this should have been a very commonplace understanding. They could look back uh, to the Old Testament teaching in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, You'll see this uh, pretty clearly there in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, that they would bring these disputes that they were unable to resolve. And in that case, they might have even been criminal disputes, but they would bring them to the priests. That in the Old Testament, in the nation of Israel, God was establishing a nation, and in that nation, the priests, in part, served a role as judges. And so they would hand this issue over and they would kind of trust. And the law is not so much about who's making the judgment, although that's mentioned there. Uh, The point of the law is that you would ultimately trust the judgment of those who offer sacrifices before God. Uh, So ultimately what it's saying here is, can you trust the church? It's asking the question, can you trust the church to help you get through some of these disputes? Sometimes uh, that's really easy to do. Sometimes it's difficult to do. Uh, But I would say that should be our first step. And to, uh, again, remind us of the perspective of Scripture, that first step is lined out for us in Matthew 18. There's a process there that we work ourselves through. And so we start with that confrontation between the two people who have the issue And then you bring in maybe some wise counsel, and then ultimately you bring it before the church and a judgment is made. And then if they still are unable to reconcile in those circumstances, then there is a separation between the one that we feel like that the church has ruled, has done the thing that they're not supposed to do. So uh, putting this in some very practical terms, uh, let's just say that you... As somebody who attends church, as a believer, uh, has had this ongoing argument with somebody else in the church. Just, it just seems like you're just always in conflict with one another. And you finally say to yourself, enough is enough. Well, let me tell you what most Christians will do in those circumstances. They'll just switch churches. They'll just leave. That, that's backwards. First, try to be reconciled. That reconciliation comes by way of having the difficult conversations. Now, I'm very non-confrontational in a general sense. I don't really like to have arguments with people. I don't really like to be in uncomfortable conversations. Of all the conversations, uncomfortable ones are the ones I'm less comfortable with. See what I did there? Nobody wants to go through those things, but what Paul's saying is there's actual value in that in bringing reconciliation within the church and bringing the church to a place where they can solve those types of things. We need to go through that process because it's actually valuable in the end. Uh, You can, in fact, sometimes trust that the church can help you through those things, and I think it's powerful. I think it's important. Um, Now, there is some disagreement among uh, good and godly people uh, to what extent you would do those things. Uh, Let me give you an example uh, that I've heard conflicting reports on from from good and godly people on how they should respond to something like this. Uh, Let's say you, as a believer, has hired somebody in the church to do work for you, and you don't feel like the work was done to your satisfaction. Should you bring that to the church and let the church kind of sort that out for you? Or is that outside of the realm of the church? Uh, I would say, although there are some who would dispute this, I would say there's nothing wrong with giving it a try. It's way better than going to 
you know, the people's court and letting Judge Wapner deal with it on TV or Judge Judy or whoever the judges are that we have today on TV. And that's really kind of the issue that they were having in Corinth. Uh, The issue that they were having in Corinth is the way that they did judging in Corinth is it was a very public matter. And so it would be out in the open for everybody to see. And people would go because they didn't have TVs. They would go to the courts, right? And they would watch these families disputing. It was like their version of the Jerry Springer show to go to court. It was very exciting for them. It was entertainment for them. Well, do we really want the world being entertained by our in-house disputes, by our inability to get along sometimes as Christians? We don't want that. And that's the second point that I would make out of this here. First, yes, let's first try it in the church. Let's see what we can do in the church to help solve the problems. And then I would say one of the reasons we do that is so that we don't bring uh, bad examples to the world. So that we don't lay our dirty laundry out there for everybody. Because I can just tell you by experience, the unbelieving world loves to see believers stumble loves to see us mess up so that they can take this one bad situation and air it out for everyone to see so they can ignore the millions of wonderful things that Christians do. That's just the way the world operates. It's one of the things that's more exciting to them. So the issue then, Paul says, is is why take things to a human court if you can solve them yourself uh, in the court at church. Uh, Jesus hints at this as well, by the way, in Matthew chapter 25 in the uh, Sermon on the Mount there where he basically says, go make peace with your adversary before you get to the courts. That there should be some level of just seeking to find peace in these circumstances. That We can somehow try to find peace without getting into a place where we can't take it back. And where we're not destroying the name or the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to grant you this one thing. Part of the reason people are uncomfortable bringing things to the church is because sometimes the church gets it wrong. That's why. There are circumstances where the church has just not done a great job in solving these things. Sometimes the church is just trying to protect their reputation. And they realize that they've messed up somehow as a church. And so in order to protect the reputation of the church, they kind of sweep things under the rug. They try to hide things. They try to deal with things in those ways. And we've messed up over the years. But again, we're talking about 2,000 years of church history of millions upon millions upon millions of churches, right, that have existed since that time. Don't allow the handful of times the church got it wrong to prevent you from trusting the church altogether. There should be some ability for you to trust those who are leading within the church. Don't bring those things before the world if you can help it. Verse 7 will take that thought even a step further. He says, actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Well, Paul, first of all, assumes, and so I can only assume, that he's received reports of lawsuits in Corinth. That's already something that's happening. That's already something that's going on. And so with that assumption, then, he says, just the very fact that you have lawsuits among believers, 
you've already lost. Everybody's lost. The whole church lost. As soon as that happened, they've lost. Now, he then gives us a very painful but possible way forward. Sometimes the way you just settle a dispute is to allow yourself to be wronged or allow yourself to be defrauded. That sometimes the better choice for the greater image of the body of Christ is for you to be like Jesus Christ, to sacrifice your side. Not a fun way forward, but it is one of the possible options. That sometimes the situation might be bad, but not so bad that you can't envision a way where you just say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let this go. There should be some ability to do that. We should have some ability to just choose to be wronged or choose to be defrauded. Again, I don't think that's the answer to every circumstance, but I think it's a possible solution. It ends the lawsuit. One side surrenders. Now, when you see the list of things about love in 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul's going to cover here uh, in a couple of weeks on July 4th, by the way, uh, we'll be looking at love. One of the things it says uh, is, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Sometimes in love, I can let things go. And that ends the dispute. Sometimes in love, I can say, okay, I lost that thing. And I think I lost it by fraud. I think they tricked me. But was that thing more important than the relationship with that person or more important than the image of the church? You have to weigh those things out. We live in a society where it's all about our personal rights. And the ultimate right is me. I want whatever I've lost, whatever I'm dealing with. That's what the real issue is that has to be solved. In the American mindset, but in the biblical mindset, it's the other person who we give precedence to. It's the kingdom that's more important. There's a surrendering there of ourselves to these greater ideals and these greater thoughts. Verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God." Uh, you're seeing a repetition here, by the way, of the Apostle Paul. This is now the third time he's used this phrase, do you not know? Do you not know? It's his rhetorical technique that he's using here to draw their attention to things that they should have already known. Uh, these things should be obvious to them. 
And so he's going to keep kind of going back to that. Uh, But he's describing the situation there. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brother. And that leads right into this long list of sins that are described there. And this is one of the things I think you have to be careful of interpretation. People love this passage to describe what's wrong with the world. But the context of this passage is to describe one of the problems in the church. The problem in the church that he's addressing here is that there are some people who are not believers in the church. And there are some people who are believers that are acting like unbelievers in the church. That's ultimately the problem that we run across, right? When believers act like unbelievers, or when we treat believers, or when we treat unbelievers as if they're believers, we give them the same rights, the same responsibilities. There's a dividing line there. And so Paul lists it out. He first says in verse 8, you yourselves wrong and defraud. And he wants those people who are in the church who are wronging believers, who are defrauding believers, to recognize that they are lumped together with those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I truly, honestly believe that there are people who are predatory agents in churches. There are people who look at churches as big targets. That there are people who go to churches because they think they can get away with all these nice people. I can trick them. I can convince them. I can use them to build whatever it is. Uh, And so I'll just, you know, uh, use an example. Years ago, um, I had uh, a a believer, uh, another pastor, approach me about this idea that he had. He was involved in a multi-level marketing plan. And he came to me with this idea, Pastor Sean, this is the solution to all your church's problems. If you would just go to all the people in your church and tell them to join this multi-level marketing plan because they love you and because they trust you, they would be helping you build a business. And the beautiful thing about it is you would also be helping our church because you would be in my downline. I don't want anything to do with your scam. We shouldn't be here to build a business, but I think there are some people that go to church because they look around the room and they see a lot of contacts. They see a lot of people that they can sell on their product that they can represent in their business. I just think there's people that are like that in the churches. And I think we kind of have to pay attention to it. There's a new scheme that's going around the church world. It's a fraud that's going around the church world. It's happened here at our church. Uh, they will go to our website, and they, this is how it happened at our church. Maybe it happens different at other churches. They went to our website where we had posted the phone numbers for all of our ministry leaders. So if you wanted to get involved in a ministry, you just contact that ministry leader. How convenient is that? Super convenient, right? Also super convenient for the scammer. They took that list of phone numbers 
and texted all of them saying, this is Pastor Sean. There's an immediate need in the church. Would you please go buy gift cards to wherever it was and bring them to me. I'll have somebody meet you at such and such a location. There's people that are just looking to pray on the church. Just know, I will never send you a text message asking for gift cards. (laughs) And if I do, feel free to call me first before you buy a gift card. Just give me a call. There's people that are looking to defraud. There are people that are looking to wrong. Uh, Another way that people are looking to defraud the church, uh, there are and have been over the years single men and women who've decided all I have to do to increase my ability to get married is to increase the dating pool. There's a lot of people at that church. I may not be a Christian, but I might just meet somebody there. And so they come in and they kind of pretend to be a Christian until they can find somebody. It's just a game that they play. They're defrauding the body of Christ. There's a real danger there. Well, Paul is essentially saying those who defraud the body of Christ are very similar to those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes through the list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, and then the dagger to the heart, such were some of you. In other words, for some of us here at church, uh, we're not reading a list of about other people's lives. We're reading a list about my life before Christ. We just kind of go through that list and like, yep, yep. Oh, I didn't do that one or that one. Oh, but I got that one. Then we start to compare our, our cards afterwards. I got a three. That's pretty good. Now, we have sometimes used this list, I think, to do harm to the world Because we focus on that list so much that we never really focus on the more important list, the ways in which to avoid those things, to be forgiven of those things, to be washed, sanctified, and justified of those things. That's the focus we really should have, but let's not make any any bones about it. The things on those lists, on this list, everything on that list is sinful. And every sin separates us from God. Every sin condemns us to hell. And so when you read through that list, and there's some things on there that uh, maybe you don't know what those words mean, but fornicator, any sexual activity outside of marriage. Idolater means they're worshiping something or someone other than God. Adulterer has broken their wedding vows. An effeminate person is a word we don't use in the same context that Paul did. Uh, but essentially, in this case, the, where it says, nor effeminate, uh, it's talking about something that was very popular within the Roman culture at that point, which is um, uh, child prostitution, essentially. Uh, usually uh, little boys, in fact, Nero, who was in charge of Rome at that time, actually had taken a young man and called him his wife, basically. And Anyway, just a lot of sickness there. Uh, homosexuality thieving, we know what these words mean. Covetous means to desire up other people's stuff. Drunkards, 
revilers means to talk violently about other people uh, or to harass other people verbally. And then, of course, the swindlers are the same as those who defraud. I love the range there. Everything pretty much is covered. There's a sin for everyone there, right? And such were some of you. But you were washed, cleansed of all of your sins, sanctified. Now that you're clean, you've been set apart for God's use, justified now, legally looked at as if you had never sinned because Jesus paid the price for all of those sins. It's all been made right. That's what God has done for us as believers. It's one of the reasons I struggle sometimes when people try to identify themselves by sinful things. To me, that's a real struggle, and I understand the psychology behind it. You identify yourself that way to remind yourself to not do those things. So the example that often comes to mind, I would say, is uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And so for the rest of their life, they'd say, I'm an alcoholic. And there's, a, there's a, a, probably a very legitimate psychological reason for that. But that's not who you are in the eyes of Jesus Christ. That's who you were. But you were washed. You were set apart. And it was all made right in Jesus Christ. The other one today that's become quite popular is... Christian homosexual. I'm a homosexual, but I happen to believe in Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, if you're going to identify first by your sin, you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. It's just not who you are. And I don't mean to offend anybody. I mean to correct your thinking. That's not our identity. And as soon as you put your identity in your sexuality, you're identifying yourself as something other than someone who's identified in their Christianity. You were washed. That stuff on this list, clean. It's gone. You were set apart from that stuff. That's not who you are anymore. You were justified. Jesus made all that was wrong there and has now made you right in the eyes of God. He paid the price. It's all taken care of. Verse 12, all things are lawful. And what you're going to see now from verse 12 uh, through verse 20 uh, is Paul in various ways uh, encouraging the believers to not live sinfully anymore. Ultimately, the sin that he's talking about is defrauding other believers because he's saying, really, the best way to avoid lawsuits in the church, stop sinning against one another. That's the ultimate best way. Nobody wants to see those things. That's the ultimate best way. Just stop sinning against one another. If only it were that easy, right? (laughs) Well, he's going to give you here some ways to think through that. The first here in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Yes, we have freedom in Jesus Christ, but not everything we do is good for us. 
And we certainly shouldn't let anything we do become our master. As soon as it's out of our control and it begins to control us, there's a real problem there, isn't there? That's where the problem is. So you have to have this mindset going into it. Although there's lots of things I'm allowed to do as a Christian, not all of them are good for me. And that's going to be a little bit different, by the way, for different people. I think there is a range in there. I think there probably are some Christians who are capable of having wine in their communion instead of grape juice. It's probably a large number of Christians. There are probably some Christians who from time to time can have a glass of wine. But there are other Christians who can't have a glass of wine. Just like some people can't just eat one Lay's potato chip. (laughs) And if you know that you're a person who's not capable of just having one glass of wine then you probably shouldn't have one glass of wine. You shouldn't have any glasses of wine. And if you're a person who can't play poker on their phone without somehow turning that into spending 12 hours in a casino, you probably shouldn't even play poker on your phone for fake money. It's probably lawful for a Christian to do that, but you have to know yourself. You just have to know yourself. You have to understand who you are. You have to react to those things. You see what I'm saying there? It might be allowable. It might be lawful. Lawful? Just make up words. It's easy. It might be lawful. It's just not the best for you. Don't be mastered by these things. He goes on, picks on me now. Food. Well, we'll just skip that. Um... (laughs) Verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with all of those. Some of these things are temporary things. Don't get overwhelmed by them. Your body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for your body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know, and there's that phrase again, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members with a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So now we have kind of this long section here that ultimately is making uh, one key point. It's that this body... It's not yours anymore. That our individual bodies have joined together, all of us corporately, with the body, the church of Jesus Christ. They are all connected in this way. 
And it's almost as if he's saying, when one of us sins, it can bring defilement to all of us. So there's a responsibility to each other in this as well. There's a real responsibility there. He goes even a step further and says, actually, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I would say that's for our personal body, but also for our church body. This is where the Spirit of God dwells. If that doesn't creep you out when you're in the middle of sin, I don't know what will. But can you imagine as you sin, you're exposing the Holy Spirit to your sin? That should feel wrong to you, shouldn't it? That should be a good guidepost for you. Is this something I would do in front of God? No. Well, guess what? Everything you do is in front of God. Because the Spirit of God dwells within you. These things are intended to be some some guideposts for us. To help us kind of keep on track some reminders for us. Paul's obviously dealing with a carnal church there in Corinth, which I think is interesting because we have this tendency to romanticize the early church. If we could just go back to the way things were in the early church. I think pretty much everything we've tried to do today as a church is in response to the way they did things as the early church and response to the Paul th- the, the things that Paul said that they did wrong as, in, as the early church. We're attempting to build on the teachings of the Apostle Paul. We want to see the things that were good in the early church, but there's also a lot of stuff that's icky in the early church that we want to avoid those things. Paul's making the, the assumption here, or he's, re, he's, he's, he's revealing the reality to us that the church had sin in it. And it describes immorality and prostitution. An interesting side note, by the way, uh, I have always um, had this kind of interesting view on marriage uh, that not everybody likes or enjoys. Um, But my view has always been that the actual event that creates a marriage is the sexual act. And at that point, the two become one flesh. And I get that here from this passage in verse 16. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. And he quotes that from the original verses that we use all the time when we talk about marriage, two becoming one flesh. And it's all cool and romantic in marriage. But we ignore that there's an action involved there that brings the two together. There's a real concern there. This world today that thinks I can just be sexually active with whoever, whenever, for however long, and just bounce from person to person to person until I get to the point where I'm married. That's not the way God intends it for the believer. We can expect that in the world, by the way. Because they don't fall under God. They haven't surrendered themselves to him. but we should not expect it in the church. We absolutely should not. And I would just say that over the years, I've done a, a lot of premarital counseling. And there's just a few people that have kept this standard. 
So even in the church, a real problem, I think, is a real problem. So he also tells us in verse 18 to flee immorality, which is a nice little rhyme, but run from it. We have examples of that in the Old Testament, by the way, of people just, here's the sinful opportunity, and they just take off running the other way. Very practical way to avoid sin, right? Just a very practical way. If, if you're given over to any particular sin, turn and run the other way. Just get out of dodge. Just flee immorality. Keep away from anything that would stumble you and cause you to sin. That final re- reminder there in verse 20, for you have been bought with a price. It's a reminder that your body no longer belongs to you. It was purchased at the cost of the life of Jesus Christ. You belong to him now. You were bought with a price. You belong to him. And that gives his ultimate conclusion for the whole passage, but probably even for the whole section. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And Paul's going to keep going back to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's going to go to this whole concept Whatever you do in word or deed, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. A very simple kind of catch-all way to think about how to live. If you have a dispute with your brother or sister in Christ, how can we solve this dispute to the glory of God? How can we solve this in such a way that God gets glorified? That's how we can handle those things. It's to put that in that right perspective. And to say that God gets glorified means that whatever we do shines the light on him. It makes him the star. It makes him the one we brag about. He's the one who gets the attention. So the outcome of it is, I had this dispute in the church, this terrible situation between me and another person, but we were able to go to God's word and find conclusion Because we serve that great of a God. We found peace. We found reconciliation because we serve that great of a God. The ultimate outcome of all of this, what Paul really wants this church to see there in Corinth and he wants our church to see, is in all the things we do that we find some way to glorify God. He says here, in your body, and I think he means specifically in this case where he talks about these acts of immorality, But I also think in the broader terms of this chapter, he means in the body of Christ, in the church. That we would glorify God. That we would make sure that the things we do are designed to draw appropriate attention to him. And draw it away from us. There really should be only one superstar, right? And that is God himself. He's the star of every story. Amen? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I recognize that there are a hundred different ways that this could impact people's lives within our church. That this could have some real rubbery, it's the road opportunities for people. Father, I would, I would assume that there are people who have been at odds within our fellowship or with other believers from other fellowships, maybe for years. maybe even to the point of bringing these things before a court of law. Lord, I pray that those folks in those circumstances would be willing to 
give the church a try to, to just see if there's a way for us to solve this issue. Now, Father, I believe there are some people that are fighting and fighting and fighting over things that aren't that big. Some things that they could just surrender. That they could just set aside. And just say that the, the wrong done is smaller than the wrong being done in trying to right it. The damage that it's causing. Our Father, teach us from time to time to surrender. And Lord, I believe part of our problem is either that we have believers who are acting like unbelievers or unbelievers who we've assumed are believers in our midst. Oh, Father, for the believers that are acting like unbelievers, I pray that they would be convicted by messages like this, that they would turn from their sin. And for unbelievers who are pretending to be believers, that they would pretend no more, that they would surrender their life to your son, Jesus Christ. And in everything we can think, how can we do these things for your glory and for your best? Father, we thank you that you have given us freedom in your son, Jesus Christ. The freedom to no longer sin. The freedom to no longer dispute. The freedom that comes for a people who have been washed of our sins, set aside for your use, and all that was wrong in our life made right in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you and we love you today in Jesus' name. Amen.